Hello, and welcome to the Anti-Racism Daily Podcast. My name is Nicole Cardoza, and this podcast focuses on tangible ways that we can dismantle white supremacy and create a more equitable future for us all. I have to confess that I never considered riding a dirt bike in my life. (laughs) That is, until I chat it with today's guest. I had the opportunity to speak with Brittany Young, an entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of B360, which is redefining both perceptions and opportunities for Black youth through dirt bike culture. Thank you so much for joining me today, Brittany. Thank you for having me. How is your day going so far? Oh, it's another wild day. You know, I think just balancing like life, work, we're still in a pandemic and everything else. So just another crazy Wednesday. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. Um, I'm really excited to have you on. We met, I don't gosh, five, six years ago now through a fellowship program that we were both in. Um, is that right? Has it really been that long? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sounds like, wait, uh, 28, 2019, 2018. No, oh, okay. Wait. Okay. Three, okay. Three years, three years. I take yeah. that back. <laughs> It feels okay. I also feel like the pandemic has been like 10 years. So I'm really having a hard time like navigating how many years it's been since, you know, before 2019. But, you know, ever since I did, you know, we connected, I really loved your work. Um, I loved if you could just introduce yourself to everybody that's listening. Yep. So I'm Brittany Young. I'm the founder and CEO of B360 from Baltimore, born, raised, never leaving. I love this city. Um, and my work in B360 transitions dirt bike riders out of traffic into safe spaces programming and really make sure we have equitable solutions um, because we just can't arrest our way out of these problems. Mm. I grew up in a really rural community where dirt biking was definitely just a part of the recreational activities for young kids, but looks drastically different than how it looks in cities like in, in Baltimore. Can you share a little bit more about dirt bike culture? Yeah. Yeah. So all of our families in Baltimore, not all, but a good amount are from the South. So motorbikes, which was the term before dirt bikes came to the U.S. in the 70s. This is also like the great migration. So of course you bring the things that you had in the South to the North. Mm-hmm. Um, most people rode dirt bikes in like black communities in Baltimore. One of the oldest like housing projects in the country is in Cherry Hill, which is in Baltimore. So it was like hilly, grassy, right? The perfect place for dirt bikes. Um, in the 80s, the style of riding kept growing. So people like Pop Willie's doing stunts. And then by the 90s, the state passed a law that you could not ride dirt bikes into parks, which caused a lot of the issues we see. Um, by the 2000s, YouTube was becoming more popular. So, of course, people were recording themselves. They were riding in the park and also now being forced to ride in the street. And when I was growing up in the early 2000s, we used to watch riders at Druid Hill Park. So you could literally, like, smell the gasoline, hear the engines rubbing, think of every Sunday. That was the only time that people rode. Um, having, like, a family picnic, picnic or cookout. And it's like thousands of people just watching and gathering to see dirt bike riders. Now, as of 2012, it is a misdemeanor in Baltimore, possession of a dirt bike. By 2015, the month after the Freddie Gray uprising, there was a dirt bike police task force to enforce the policy. And then, as we know, people keep making movies, documentaries, blah, blah, blah. 
about the style of riding, but it's always from this monolith struggle, not really telling people or letting people know, like, dirt bike riding is as much a part of Baltimore as I am, as a snowball or the crab cake. And when I think about my experience as a Black person in this city, I see dirt bike riders. And a lot of the struggles we have right now is that, you know, all cities are going through gentrification, but people come into our neighborhoods and tell us what we can and cannot do and keep displacing riders from where they've been riding for so long. But it's really about, you know, compassion, excitement. A lot of riders ride to escape city life. Um, they have this model, bikes up, guns down, that you pick up a dirt bike instead of a gun, and that bike's built bonds. So it was really, I would say, just like any other sport, something that your parents invest in, they should take time to learn and to grow. And there are kids that ride, moms that ride, grandparents that ride, and it's not going anywhere. Just how do we keep making sure that we can embrace it holistically in our city? Mm, thank you for sharing that. I can also imagine there's such a community of people riding together, very similar to what you see in other sports. Yes. Yeah, it's really no different um, than like motocross, right? The only difference is motocross is a $32 billion industry that is endorsed and popular and allowed to be on mainstream media and people riding dirt. Urban riding is on asphalt, but it's the same exact dirt bike. Um, the same level of skill, the same level of thrill, the same level of like things that can go wrong. And of course, there's a lot of community, but I think one of the biggest gripes for people who ride dirt bikes that are black is just that, that no one has ever taken the time to make sure they have equal investment as you would see like a supercross or like any of those major like sports outlets for dirt bikes. Like dirt bikes are in the X Games and the Olympics for that style of riding where people do hills and jumps and flips and backflips and whatever else. That's the same level of skill and the same level of extreme sports that is also happening in our cities that can easily be shifted into a safe space and provided opportunities. Yeah, that's powerful. Especially when you think about how many, um, the representation of people of color and representation of people from urban environments in some of these games. Um, you don't get that if you don't appreciate the sports that are, are you know, so natural to their communities. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. I think, you know, it's what we've seen in all arenas, you know, that's, before dirt biking was basketball was baseball, you know, we had to create the Negro League just for baseball to be accepted for Black people too. Um, and this isn't any different. I think the only thing that may be more nuanced is the negative stigma or the labels that have been put on the entire community of people who ride dirt bikes in cities. You know, like a lot of the media says that dirt bike riders like carry guns, they're criminals, and that's not really true. You know, that is a stereotypical depiction. And we know that media influences perception, but also influences public policy. And so I just want to be able to offer solutions, but also make sure that we equitably, you know, solve these problems because the skateboarders, we didn't give them a dirt bike task force or a skateboarding task force, we gave them a space. So it was really different between the skateboarders and bicyclists or dirt bike riders other than demographics. So one of the awards that I won this year is the Bessie Stringful Award, right? And I was so freaking excited about it. So um, the American Motorcycle Association, they have this award called the Bessie Strengthful Award for like pioneering a new market or like a new industry. Oh, Bessie cool. Stringfield, yeah, for anyone that watched like Lovecraft Country, she was the person that was right next to Texas 
car on like the motorcycle. So mm. she is the first black woman in the Motorcycle Hall of Fame. She uh, rode through Jim Crow South with the Tuskegee Airmen when it came back from World War What One, um, and then really coined motorcycles as a sign of radical freedom. And she is a matriarch of stunt riding. So all the stunts we see today from like people on Harley, like X Games, to like our style of riding started with this black woman, Bessie Stringfield, over 50 years ago, right? And she is the motorcycle queen of, my, of Miami. That's where she's from. So this award, I was like, oh, shit. Y'all giving me this award? Oh, that's crazy. But then when I looked at the list of people who won before me, I was the first and only black person to ever win an award. No. <laughs> In her name? Yes, in the 20-year history of this award, I am the first and the only, right? And so I went back to the board, like, oh, thank you for this award. Like, you know, maybe we should do a cover story with me and, you know, Bessie has passed, but, like, what this means to Black people and, and motorcyclists. You know, me being the first, like, that, that's also a bad thing, but we can flip it into, like, wow, okay, now that we're here, now what? You know, so I was right. like, you know, can right. I be on the board? Can we have the cover? You know, can we actually have an award ceremony? Can we do stuff? It was no, no, we'll think about it, we'll see. And I'm like, oh, y'all got me fucked up. You mm. know, not, but that's but that's really, you know, what I was saying before about this industry, but all industries, right? Someone has to be the first, I won't be the last. But it's also, I know Bessie Stringfield 50 plus years ago, never thought that all the work that she did to liberate not even just motorcycles but black people will still have to be fought today in 2021 you know so it's, it's this part of the industry that people don't see when we do campaigns there's literally people calling us monkeys on dirt bikes you know talking about our accents talking about our kids talking about our hairstyles and that's what i really want for this industry is i'm not saying we even gotta be with y'all i'm saying we want our own space we just want the same resources the same investment and the same opportunity to create our own thing by ourselves because Bessie deserves more, so do I, but it's going to stop with me, you know, that no one else coming after us should have to go through the challenges that she did that I still got to deal with. Um, so, yeah, that, that award was big, especially for motorsports. It's like one of the most prestigious awards to ever get, but who even knows that I have the award and why am I the first and the only Black person to win an award named after a Black woman? Mm, gosh. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Because you're right. I mean, like, it, that shouldn't be happening now. And our kids deserve so much better. Yeah. And we just need, you know, we just need better accountability from yeah. the people who, I'll, maybe they don't, they don't know they probably get racism, which is fine. We need, a, you know, the benefit of doubt. Just more accountability, like, it's 2021, we're still dealing with the same issues. You know, there, if you look at like a lot of the, the motorcycle companies, you will rarely see black people on yeah. their campaigns and their ads. You know, we're doing a, a deal now for Helmet Company, and we are the first black people that's on the Instagram page ever. <laughs> and like, and like, I can't make this stuff up and it makes me laugh, but it's also like, really, how, how can we not see that this has been issues for so long? Yeah, that's ridiculous. And it, I mean, also, like, I just have to, like, thank you for the work that you're doing, because it makes such an impact beyond the, the motorcycle industry, beyond the dirt bike community, beyond Baltimore, like, you're, you're changing perceptions, you're changing frameworks, and you're, you're transforming opportunities for, 
for all black and brown kids, you know, and anyone who's felt marginalized. What I love about your work too at B360 is that you can see beyond, you know, the cultural significance of dirt bike culture, all of the other skills and lessons that kids in particular can learn along the way and, and appreciate there are, I should say that they're already learning these things. If they're already engaging in, in, in culture, they're already riding bikes, but the way that you cultivate it. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, the work at B360. Yeah, so we really focus in three areas. Um, first is programming. We have three types of programs now, a STEM program, a workforce program, and a diversion program. So diversion program is very new. Uh, we partner with our state attorney's office, so literally reimagining public safety and education in real time. So for anyone in Baltimore City who has a nonviolent offense, you know, whether it be dirt bikes, traffic violations, or whatever else, they do programming and training with b 3 60 instead of going to jail. So that's been really impactful because we're literally showing that, yes, you can do programming and not incarceration and have better outcomes. Our workforce is for people that are over 16. So these are kids, young adults who usually ride dirt bikes anyway. We teach them our curriculum and then we provide them a job to work with younger students. So right now we're in 11 rec centers across Baltimore City. And then our STEM program works with kids under 16, teaching them how to build, code, design, and 3D print model-sized dirt bikes, teaching them how to ride safely, fix dirt bikes, repair them. Um, and it's been over 8,000 kids so far. This summer alone, we'll be at 1,200 students. And in our workforce program, we work with over 36 young adults so far. The second thing we do is an advocacy. So we advocate for people who want to ride safely. This means working with cities and governments around better practices, better, um, you know, better engagement with community and making safe spaces. So we actually will be launching a campaign later this year with our city for the first space for dirt bike riders for the skill set. And then the third thing we do is we work with like the motorsports industry to create events for our style of riders. So the same way there's X Games, Supercross, all that good stuff for people who ride on dirt. We want to have our own venues and our own uh, recreational use for people who ride on asphalt. So that's B360 in a nutshell. Wow, I didn't even realize how quickly your work has scaled since we met a couple of years ago. That's incredible. And scary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I I did not plan on that. Um, well, not, actually, I'm going to take it back. I think I manifested it for real. Um, back when we were in ID in 2017, when I whiteboarded what I wanted to be 360, a lot of that came into fruition today. So I said in the beginning, we started B360 to make sure people with nonviolent offenses, specific dirt bikes, can have programming. Now we're part of the state attorney's office, you know. So I think mm -hmm. it's, you know, been a good mix of like manifesting slash working because I already knew where I wanted the orphan grow to. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been running this since 2017. Is that right? Yes. Yep. So a lifetime. Does it feel like a lifetime? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. What does it feel like for you? Um, just a part of my journey as a person. Um, hmm. I think people don't know how much I've already done in my life way before B360. Mm -hmm. um and I think that's a part of like being a founder that sometimes gets lost for people like I'm a whole person without B360 yeah. is an extension of who I am but it is not me and I've done so much more 
before this, and I think people are, you know, kind of like catching up to who I am right now, but it's also not going to be the thing I end with by the time I die, you know? So, like, in 10 years from now, I still will be the founder, I'll be CEO, but I won't be at this capacity, it'll be 360 because it's not sustainable. Yep. I hear you. And when I first met you, I remember hearing like all of the different spaces that you've shown up like throughout your career, throughout your journey. Um, and I would love to hear a little bit about how you, how you initially got interested in STEM. Yeah. Um, I would say me, my, I think my thing is I'm good at teaching people how smart they already are. And I'm naturally a disruptor. My, I'm really big in numerology. I'm a master builder. So that's really mm-hmm. where it comes from. Is my in my brain? I'm a master builder and destroyer, but I use it for good. As a kid, I was a master destroyer, um, but my brain just literally can solve problems, and that's what all engineers do. You know, if we keep it really simple. So, from a kid at six years old, I had my first chemistry set. So I was watching Bill Not a Science Guy. I made my parents buy it for me. Um, I often got in trouble in school doing experiments and explosions, and it's either do experiments or explosions, or I'm going to be fighting. So they just didn't really have a choice but to like let me do the experiment. Um, fast forwarding to by the time I was 19, I started working in engineering. So I was this young black girl from Baltimore. There was no one in my entire company that looked like me at all. And I was confused for the secretary. So I always tell people too, I was ready for STEM, but it wasn't ready for me. Like since I was in first grade, I knew I was going to go into engineering. But I had teachers tell me I couldn't because I'm where I'm from, how I look, my parents didn't go to college. And then entering the industry, I met that head on, you know, that people just didn't believe that I belonged in this space just because they had never seen a person like me in this space. Um, but I've done anything from planned satellite explorations to Venus, Mars, and Mercury. I'm a published first author in a science like research journal before I was 20. Um, food science, so like literally making spices and a lot of food products that are on the market now. Um, medical devices, so manufacturing, prototypes, asset management and project management, so literally like fixing the buildings and like hiring the people that can control like the budgeting for it. Manufacturing to a lot of hair care products, skincare products, and um, base products. I've pretty much done everything you can think about in engineering before the age of 28. Wow, that's incredible. As you see your career growing in the future, is there anything that you have your eyes on right now? No, <laughs> not at all. Um, I think when I retire, I'm not saying that like with air quotes, like, mm-hmm. like 47 or something, you know, it'll just be another thing to do of like I want to have my own foundation or my own um, investment firm for more people that look like me so specifically black women you know where of course we can give philanthropically but also invest in companies and corporations and that's what I mean like I feel like my journey in engineering has has finished um, but it's how engineering translates I'm still the same person that solves problems but the problems I'm solving are not like at a desk or in a chemistry lab or in like a kitchen is instead like working every day in community. And so what's next will probably be, you know, like maybe one day I'll be like the head of transportation, but maybe also I'll be like an impact invest- investor. Maybe I'll be both at the same time. I've actually never had one job in my whole life until mm. now. 60. 
but this is also new for me. Since 2018, this is the first time in my life I've only had one job at a time. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I think sometimes with with founders of color, particularly Black founders, particularly Black female founders, that were oftentimes typecast, like you mentioned earlier, like, oh, this is the person that does this work, and therefore that is all that they represent. So I'm just inspired by, one, the legacy that you've lived and the one I'm sure you're, you're that's going to follow this work. So thank you. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. And I think you hit it in the head, too. It's like the humanity and the people. Like, mm-hmm. yes. You know, we do good work, but it's an extension of the person that does the good work is because the person is a good person. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about being from a community and doing work there, the work that you're doing right now with B360, because, you know, a lot of times in philanthropic efforts and community-based initiatives, and you mentioned this a bit with the the history of Baltimore, you see people kind of like pilot in, (laughs) they kind of fly in and they think that they can help solve problems even though they're not from the community. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on that as somebody from West Baltimore doing work in Baltimore. Um, how do you feel about that, those kinds of initiatives? Yeah, um, I think that's where it gets a lot confused and messed up. So for me, and like this is what I holistically believe, is that the people close to the problem are the solution is solving it. Even me being from Baltimore, being from West Baltimore, you know, when I was young, wanting to be a dirt bike rider, but I don't like to fall. Um, I still had no choice but to go and get actual dirt bike riders to be a part of our program, right? So even with my proximity to the problem, I'm still not a rider. And I recognize that. And I said, let me make sure that the riders in the state can have a buy-in. And even if we don't have a table, we're going to make the table with them. I think a lot of times people approach problems from the top down, like they know what's best for communities. They know how to handle it, but that's why all the solutions fail. Um, and with dirt bikes or any other solution, specifically for Black people, you really can't come into a Black neighborhood or Black community and say, this is the issue, let me solve it. The job of the people is, the job of those that want to help people is to make sure they bring the resources because all the solutions that's needed to solve the challenges of our communities are already working in our communities. And I think that can be sometimes hard for people who have these grandiose ideas when they cannot get over the fact that actually we don't need saviors, we need resources, and we need people that can open the door and to sponsor the work we're already been doing. I have a lot of friends and a lot of mentors and people that are like way older than me that have been doing work for 50 plus years in their own communities. Like, you know, one, one group is Safe Streets in Baltimore. While Baltimore may have a higher homicide rate, one of the Safe Streets districts has a zero homicide rate, right? And that's not talked about enough. How is this small community being able to tackle their own problems, right? It's because they already have a way of blend. They can, they know who to talk to. They know who to focus on. But what we traditionally see, like especially in Flanchby, is because that smaller safe street may not have the data or may not have those connections, they lose out on the grant dollars. And they allow, I'm not going to say what the organization is, but another organization to come in that had the research, that had the buy-in from the city to then get the contracts when they didn't even know the land. And that's a typical story. So I think any problem, the solution is already there in the community, resting with the people who are the closest to it. To have a holistic strategy, you have to work with the people. Anyone that's about to create something, I would always challenge them. 
if you're working for or if you're if you're creating a solution for xyz people and xyz people are not helping you make the solution it's wrong and that's just like my bottom line and we see that too even in philanthropy right when philanthropy is saying we want to solve these challenges in the communities and you see no representation of that community on their boards and their leadership in any of the places that it's supposed to be how can you solve challenges for a community that's not represented in your everyday work thank you for sharing that and I also, I mean, what you said too, is like, how can we continue to honor like incredible community-based work that's happening that's so often overlooked? I'm glad you brought that up because sometimes the media will harp on like larger scale, nationally recognized, well-funded um, initiatives instead of honoring the, the stories of small grassroots efforts that are making tangible differences, like what you mentioned around um you know, the, the uh, violence in, in Baltimore on that small street. Yeah, and I, I think that's too, it's like we just said with policy. A lot of policy, especially for dirt bikes, I've done a lot of testimonies last three weeks. A lot of the policy changes happen without like riding the table, talk about the long-term impact, you know what I mean? And I think policy is a good example of a policy that negatively affects like black and brown community, you know, whether it's like old Jim Crow, new Jim Crow is made at decision makers who have no buy-in or no stakes in those communities that they're affecting. And I think that's why I said, like, you know, we get into a lot of these problems just because people don't have the foresight to think long-term because it doesn't affect them. So, and that's how people, unfortunately, solve problems or make businesses or make, you know, their companies, which is like, let me just do this really big and, and huge, but you actually don't have any, like, lay in the people that you're working for. And I, yeah, that's one of my, like, yeah. For people that are listening, I know that we have a lot of incredible community-based organizers in our um, in our network. What would you recommend for them that may be struggling when they see some of this bullshit happening around them? I think the power of community is the strongest. We deal with the same thing. We do have national attention and then locally a good amount of attention, but still get overlooked too. You know, we can be on all these today shows, whatever and still have the same issues with funding, but like our real buy-in comes in from our community. You know, so when I testified in Philadelphia, like now, I think a month ago or two against their bill, um, for them not to pass a new policy for dirt bike riders, and then the dirt bike riders called Baltimore and was like, you know, who is Brittany that's testifying? And the riders was like, yeah, she's like, shit, you know, like they vouch for us. So I would think no matter what we come up against as like grassroots organizing leaders, the biggest asset we have at our backbone and our discretion that we need to always pull on is how much our own community supports us. And so I always tell people, my validation is not in none of the awards, the accolades. I don't care if philanthropy, you know, is giving us all the kudos. If at the end of the day, we'll be through 60, if the people that we're serving and that we're working with aren't happy, my job is not done. You know, so I would say, make sure that when you go after problems that your community is supporting you and no matter what the challenge happens or may come that make sure you know they stand behind you and beside you because that's the power right there like there's a lot of communities and a lot of people who can't come into our communities for a reason and it will go nowhere I know for a fact I live in that that no matter where we go in Baltimore or these new cities we'll venture to there's someone who will champion us and 
just because of the work that we've done in, in Baltimore with the people that matter in Baltimore who will justify and like validate anyone else or anywhere else we've gone to. Mm. That's, that's something that other people can't get. And that's something like the big, you know, the, the other kind of companies can't get, you know, like they can't get the community part of it and they never will be able to. And yeah. I think we need to lean into that. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you resource yourself with everything going on? I can imagine just just like day in, day out, life is stressful um, or can be stressful with work. Right. But how are you resourcing yourself with in, in this time that we're living in? Ooh, that is a great freaking question. Um, one <laughs> is, I'm really trying to think about this. Um, so I've definitely been going way too hard. So since COVID last six months, but in general, like I'm really good at saying no, if it don't serve me, if it don't have a purpose, just no. Um, with me, my calendar, I'm also like really big on like logistics for myself to hold myself accountable. Monday, no, Monday and Tuesday on my days off, I do not talk to people. You cannot access me. Like it has to be something really important for me to like let people talk to me on Mondays and Tuesdays. Um, but for scheduling, only Wednesday and Friday, Wednesday through Friday is all the time like, I can schedule. Um, let me think. I've made it a case now since like COVID is getting lighter, I guess, to go somewhere every month. So since May, I've been to about a bit more than every month I've been somewhere, about seven different places, you know, just getting like back out there, just me time. Um, I have no problem turning off my computer and like just shutting it down. I'm also really big on, I will do like these power hours, I call it, I'll put myself on a timer, I'll do 20 minutes, 20 minutes, 20 minutes, like the crank out stuff. And then that makes me more efficient, but I'm really big just in general, like just enjoying my time and like just living in moments and like knowing that things don't have to be 100% perfect and being okay with that. And just also being less accessible and just being okay with not being accessible and people will get over it. That's how I feel. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I love the boundaries that you, you know, you're making clear through what you're sharing. And that's something I really struggle with. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. And even making the boundaries, right? People make you feel bad for having boundaries. Like if my team calls me on Monday, I'm like, what? No, decline. You know, like this. Yeah, I know that's right. Email. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, or my phone be on do not disturb. Or like if people, you know, I'm really big. If people really want to call me at nine o'clock in the morning on Wednesday, no, my calendar is at 12. I mean, so it's really just making sure I just hold myself, even holding me to my own boundaries, you know, because you can get lost and like, oh, wow, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. But burnout is not, it's not a badge of honor. Like, I, I hate it, you know. And people don't realize you can be fully functioning, like, in depressed. And I don't, I think that's a part of, like, the entrepreneurship journey that's not discussed. You know, we can be in the limelight, look like we're shining, and then every day be wondering, like, what the fuck? You know, so I'll have days, I'm just like, what? No, I just need to take off. Just like anyone else can take off from their job, I just need time to just be like, look, no. Yeah. Yeah. Oof, I'm taking notes over here. I need to, I need to get there. <laughs> so thank you. Um, one question I like to ask everybody before we close is what is bringing you joy right now? Yeah. See, that's that deep sob. Like, Oh shit. What is mm. bringing you joy? Um, I can definitely easily say the work, but that's like, like 
cost at the same time because it also brings me pain. <laughs> like, you know, this work yeah. is joyful and painful. I love like our kids. I love like we had an event with them yesterday and just seeing how they take over a room and people feel privileged to know them. Like that's a sign of joy, but that's like again rooted deep in 60. For me, as Brittany, what's been bringing me joy is honestly still being here in 2021 and knowing that I'm sustained, right? And knowing that I've gotten from being a survivor to now being a sustainer and then looking at soon thriving. So I think that's been the joyous part for me in all of my careers and even with B360 and outside of B360 is just knowing that I'm ever growing and that the things that I wanted for myself as a kid, I'm seeing now at 32, and I'm only just getting started. So I think that's really the joy part of this is how much I've grown, how much I've grown back to my younger self, too. Because little Brittany, she was like the shit. Um, and how much more <laughs> I look forward to like getting back to her. That's what's been bringing me joy and just really peace. You know, really being at peace that it doesn't have to be a hustle and bustle. It doesn't have to be booked and busy. You can be booked, but not busy, you know, and really just like living in these moments of of things I've accomplished and just being happy with me. That's what's been bringing me joy. Well, how can people listening support your work? Of course, the easiest is to go to b360baltimore.org slash donate. Um, Instagram and Facebook. Baltimore, but the really easiest is to have these conversations in your own homes and to carry that, you know, a lot of the gems that we dropped today. A lot of issues happen in community, true, but a lot of solutions happen in community also. And what I need is for more people to be accomplices, not just allies, and to help, you know, undo a lot of practices that hinder us. And we know the stigma with dirt bikes um, is one that people often talk about but also talk about the positive things we're doing on this side and making sure people talk about B360 and invest in B360 as opposed to just always focusing on the problems. Hmm. Well, Brittany, thank you so much for spending time and sharing all of your wisdom with us today. I'm so grateful for you. And I hope we chat soon. I hope you have some time to like rest and explore the rest of the day. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm taking a nap. Oh, perfect. Well, I won't keep you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. All right. You can learn more about the work of B360 at B360Baltimore.org. Make a donation to support their work at B360Baltimore.org slash donate. And follow them on Instagram for updates at B360Baltimore. You can subscribe to the Anti-Racism Daily podcast by searching Anti-Racism Daily on all of your favorite podcast networks. To subscribe to our free daily newsletter, you can go to antiracismdaily.com and you'll receive daily tactical actions to dismantle white supremacy. The Anti-Racism Daily podcast is co-hosted and co-produced by me, Nicole Cardoza. And co-produced and edited by me, Mallory Chang. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you again soon. Thank you.